I'll tell you a story before we get started about a, an ordinary person who made an incredible difference. Part of the story you've likely heard before, because I'm sure I've told it. The story begins in the 1800s with a, a dry goods salesman named Edward Kimball. Now, Kimball agreed to teach a Sunday school class at his church for teenage boys. And as Kimball taught this class, his heart became really burdened for these boys and determined that each one of his boys would come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. He would win them all to Christ. And so he set out to win them one by one to Jesus. One of the teenage boys in his class was said to be biblically clueless. And he fell asleep often on Sundays. And his name was Dwight L. Moody. Now not seeing any fruit from his Sunday school teaching in young Dwight's life, Kimball determined to visit him at work where he sold shoes and to share the gospel with him there. When Kimball went, he said that he went to Moody and his heart was pounding because he was afraid. He put his hand on Moody's shoulder and in his own words he said, I, I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love that Christ wanted in return. He asked, him to, he asked Moody to surrender his life to Christ and left that day feeling like a failure as Moody initially resisted. But as the day went on, Moody thought about those words and he did surrender his life to Jesus. And of course, we know the story of who D.L. Moody is. He went on to become a great evangelist telling thousands about Jesus and what Jesus had done. But the story really didn't stop there. In 1873, on June 17th, Moody arrived in Liverpool, England for a series of evangelistic crusades. During these crusades, he preached at a Baptist church pastored by a man named F.B. Meyer. Meyer was initially unimpressed with Moody because Moody was uneducated and uneloquent in his speaking but he came to appreciate Moody's passion for Jesus and his faith. They became friends and Moody invited Meyer to come to America to preach. At a Bible conference in Northfield, Illinois, Meyer challenged the crowd saying, If you're not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you willing to be made willing? That remark left an enormous, made an enormous difference in the life of a struggling young minister named J. Wilbur Chapman. Chapman went on to be a powerful traveling evangelist in the early 1900s. Through his evangelistic ministry, he recruited a converted pro baseball player named Billy Sunday to join his evangelistic endeavors. Billy Sunday also went on to become a powerful evangelist in America in the early 1900s. During one of his crusades in Charlotte, North Carolina, a group of people were converted who began to pray regularly for God to visit Charlotte, North Carolina again and to bring another revival like that to their town. Through their praying and through their working, an evangelist named Mordecai Ham was invited to a 1935 or 1934 citywide crusade. In that crusade, a 16-year-old named William Franklin Graham surrendered his life to Christ. William Franklin Graham, of course, is the evangelist Billy Graham. Now, this, see, this series of events can seem fantastic, but it's all true. I mean, it's not a share this in your email and God will bless you in three days kind of a story. This is, this is a, a legitimate historical event of the way things traced from a guy named Edward Kimball to Billy Graham. And what we learn is that, that God can do anything 
through anyone that he wants to, that there is no limit on what can do, what God can do through anyone who wants to make a difference and who is willing to let God work in them, through them, and for them. Nehemiah is proof of that. But in Nehemiah, we also learn some character traits that, that we need if we are going to be like Edward Kimball and be someone that God works through to make a difference. So open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 2. Verse 1 is where we're going to start. That's page 371 if you've got a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Nehemiah 2 and 1. It says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine... And gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me. Why is thy countenance sad. Seeing thou art not sick. This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. And I said to the king. Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad. When the city. The place of my father's sepulchres. Lieth in waste. And the gates thereof are consumed with fire. And the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if I serve and have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me to Judah unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, and the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be, and when thou shalt thou return? And it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come to Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the servant of the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. The title of the message tonight is Making a Difference. Let's pray. Now, Father, we love you. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come tonight with a desire to... Make a difference. Lord, we want to make a difference for eternity in someone's life. We want to make a difference in our home, in our church, and in our community. Father, tonight we need you to help us to see that you can work through anyone that you want to. And you can do anything that you want done through us. Father, help us to see that we don't have to be great because you are. That, Lord, we can be ordinary people who just set out to be faithful to do what you want done. And Lord, you can do great things through faithfulness and belief in you. Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Guide me that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Use it to challenge us, to change us, to draw us closer to you. Have your way in all things, we ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now in Nehemiah 1 and 11, before Nehemiah comes to where we're at, 
Nehemiah prayed and he said, Oh, I beseech thee, let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name, to prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah knows that God can do anything that he wants to do. He knows that God can fix all of the problems in Jerusalem and make it better there. But Nehemiah doesn't want God to do it just in a, like a supernatural way. Nehemiah himself wants to be a part of making a difference. He wants God to work through him to help make the situation in Jerusalem better. He, he didn't want God to just snap his fingers and make the walls stand up. He didn't want the king to just send some people to, to fix the walls and do the work. Nehemiah himself wanted to actively work so that he could make a difference. Now, I love that in Nehemiah's attitude. Uh, he has this desire for God to work in him and through him and for him to make a difference in the world around him. And I believe that Nehemiah's attitude, it is the attitude that all of us as disciples of Jesus are meant to have. All right? While we, would, we desire God to make things better, and while we pray for God to make things better, we should also want to be a part of what God is doing to make the world a better place. There should be a desire within us to make a difference. And what we can learn from stories like that of Edward Kimball, that of of Ezra, or that of Nehemiah, a cupbearer to the king, is that God doesn't need us to be great. God is great. God doesn't need great and awesome people to do His work. God needs faithful people. God needs people that are willing to do His work. God can use anyone He wants. And God often, most often, used ordinary people to accomplish the things He wanted done. And that is our main lesson. That God can and often does work through ordinary people to make an extraordinary difference. Time doesn't permit us to go into all the different ways that we see that one truth. I mean, we could look at Peter and we could look at the twelve apostles. And they were ordinary people, the lot of them. They were fishermen and tax collectors and political radicals and, and, and anything else that you can imagine that would make them ordinary people. And yet God worked through them to accomplish His will in the world. Nehemiah too, as a cupbearer, was an ordinary guy. He, had, he did have a unique position and a unique job as the king's cupbearer. But he wasn't spectacular. He was just a guy who believed and desired to be used of God to make a difference in the world around him. There are three character traits of Nehemiah that, that I think are always found in those people that God works through to make an extraordinary difference. But the first, it's courage to act. As the king's cupbearer, his main job was to protect the king by tasting the food and drinks for poison. Because poisoning was a very common way of trying to off the king. Now, it's my understanding that, of course, that meant he would always be kind of in the king's presence. And it's my understanding that kings expected 
everyone to came into their presence to be happy, no matter what. They should be overjoyed that they were getting to stand in the presence of the king. If they were getting to be in the king's presence, there was no reason for them to be sad or, or sorrowful. And if they were, it was expected that they would fake it. That they would look happy. Because if they were to show sadness or displeasure at the king's presence, he could, and it seems often did, order the servant to be executed. Now up to this point, Nehemiah says he had never, before time, he had never been sad in the king's presence. He had always done what he was supposed to do. But things were about to change. Right? Nehemiah is sad. He is sad about the condition of Jerusalem. He has, it says, it says in verse 2 that there is sorrow of, of heart that he has. That's what the king recognized in Nehemiah. We know from chapter 1 that Nehemiah essentially just sort of broke down when he heard it. He fasted. He prayed. He, he cried deep emotional tears over the situation in Jerusalem. And when he walks into the king, his presence sad at what's going on in his hometown. The king recognizes it and recognizes that it's sorrow of heart. Now, notice Nehemiah's response at the last of verse 2. And I was very sore afraid. He was terrified. If things did not work out, he would soon be dead. And he had a choice to make at this point. He could have put on his happy face and he could have lied and said, Oh, everything's okay. I'm sorry, I just wasn't thinking. And tried to smooth it over. Or he could tell the truth about why he's sad. As though a pagan king cares about why his slave cupbearer is sad. To be sad in the king's presence was risky enough. But to sort of lay it all out about why you're sad in the king's presence. Well, that is extraordinarily risky. This is why he was sore afraid. And I love that Nehemiah was sore afraid. And yet we see in verse 3 that he went on to tell the king what was going on. He didn't try to fake it. He didn't try to pretend. In the midst of his fear, his terror, he told the king why he was sad. And I like this because often we, we many times we understand courage as a lack of fear. To be courageous means I'm never afraid. And yet, what we learn from Nehemiah and in many other places is that courage isn't so much the absence of fear as courage is the determination to do the right thing despite being afraid. Courage isn't saying I'm not scared. Courage is saying even though I'm sore afraid to do what needs to be done, I'm going to do it anyway. It's the kind of courage that Nehemiah had. It's the kind of courage that we're going to have to have if we're going to make a difference in the world around us. Because making a difference, it does require courage. Working to make a difference requires us to face our fears, to acknowledge our fears, and then do what needs to be done anyway. The reality is if we wait until we're not afraid to do something, we will never do anything, most likely. Or if we do, it will be too late. By the time we determine to act, it will already be too late. 
working to make a difference, it will be scary. It will challenge us in that way. That's not even a question. The question is, will I let my fears conquer my faith, or will I let my faith conquer my fears? Scripture warns us against the latter. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. The fear of man brings a snare because it prevents us from doing God's will. But if we let the fear of man conquer our faith in God, then it will keep us from doing the will of God always. Now, this doesn't have to be like Nehemiah, a mortal fear for our lives. But there are any number of ways the fear of man could be played out. We could let fear of a co-worker's response keep us from telling them about Jesus and their need for Him. We could let fear of losing a friendship keep us from doing what we can to influence them for Jesus. We can let fear of what others might say to our kids or about our kids cause us to let them do things we know they shouldn't do. We can let fear of what the crowd might say about us cause us to go along with the crowd. Now we often think peer pressure when it comes to kids, teenagers, and it is a a kid thing. But let's be honest. Peer pressure is very much a real thing for adults as well. Just as teenagers and kids fear what the crowd may say and what the crowd may think, adults do as well. And when we let the fear of the crowd's thoughts and words hinder us from doing God's will, we are letting the fear of man conquer our faith in God. And, and on and on we could go with a number of ways that we could let the fear of man keep us from doing God's will. Scripture teaches we overcome this by putting our trust in God. And, and that really is the key to overcoming the fear of man is just trusting in God. And that, that sounds easy. But we all know it's not as easy as it sounds. Because trusting God is more than saying, I'm not afraid of what man can do. Instead, I just trust God. Really, trusting God... <coughs> More than fearing man, it's seen when we push through our fears and we do what needs to be done. We work to make a difference around us despite our fear. Right? I don't trust God more than I fear man if fear keeps me from telling someone about Jesus. I don't trust God more than I fear man if fear keeps me from standing for what's right. I don't trust God more than I fear man if I do just go with the crowd when the crowd is wrong. I don't trust God more than I fear man if I let fear keep me from doing anything, no matter what it is, anything that I know God wants me to do. One of the great things about God is God never calls on us to do something without enabling us to do it. Paul says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Now, there are two powerful truths in this verse. The first is the fear of man is never from God. That's a huge, huge thing because we can say, well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm nervous, and I'm afraid, and I'm thinking this is God holding me back. But if I am afraid of, of their thoughts, their attitudes, their actions, their reactions... It is never, it is not ever, never is that from God. The fear that we fear 
The fear that we feel that holds us back from doing what God wants us to do to make a difference is never, never from God. Jesus said the only fear we should have as disciples is a fear of the Lord. In fact, Jesus says if we fear God, we need not fear man. We don't have to fear those that can only kill our bodies. Rather, we should fear the one that can kill our bodies and cast our souls into hell, he says. Fear of how people will react, respond, or reflect on our doing is never from God. That fear that holds us back like that is never, never from God. Second truth is that God will give us the power, courage, and boldness we need So that we can do His will. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but He has given us something. Of power and love and of sound mind or self-control, some translations say. However, God only gives us this power, this love, this sound mind or self-control as we step out and do it. God never empowers us to sit. And in my experience, God never empowers us until we step. But because if I if I'm sitting here and I'm just suddenly filled with power and love and a sound mind, well, it doesn't take a lot of faith to step out then, does it? But when I'm afraid and I don't feel the power, love and a sound mind and I step out, that's faith. And it's only as I step that this power floods into my life. Think about when that Joshua and them were going to cross the river. God told them to, to take the ark and to walk into the river and God would part the river for them so they could cross. But when did the river part? When they picked up the ark? When they started walking toward it? Or when their feet were actually in the water? And from what I understand, it wasn't even when the feet of the dudes up front were in it, but when the guys behind. So the front guys had to walk knee deep into the river. And as the feet of the guys in the back touched the river, then it parted. God made them walk by faith, trusting He would do what He said He would do, and then He parted the river. God empowers us as we go. Because His power, His courage, His boldness, they're not needed if we're not going to do anything. Making a difference in the world around us requires us to have the courage to act. But courage is not for the exceptional few who feel feel no fear. Courage is when ordinary believers do what they know God wants them to do despite being afraid. And those Ordinary believers who will take courage and act. God will work through to make an extraordinary difference in the world around them. It takes courage to act. It takes confidence in God. So the king asked Nehemiah in verse 4. For what dost thou make request? Notice what Nehemiah did. I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, he's prayed for quite a while leading up to this moment. But in that moment when the king says, what's your request? Nehemiah takes just one more time and says a breath prayer. Oh, God, help. And then he launches into what he wants. He wants to be released from the king's service. 
for a period of time so that he can go to Jerusalem. He wants the king to give him letters that shows he has the right to go from Susa to Jerusalem and that he's not an escaped slave and that he has the authority to go and to do this for the king. And then he asked the king to give him letters commanding the keeper of the forest to to give him the trees necessary to rebuild the temple, the walls, and the house that he would build where he would live. These are huge requests. These are big things for a slave to ask from a pagan king. But Nehemiah's confidence, it's not in his eloquence. His confidence is not in his ability to sell the deal, to cast the vision, to do any of that. Nehemiah's confidence is in the Lord God of heaven. He has spent weeks or months praying up to this point. He prays again right before he speaks. And when the king grants the request, in verse 8 it says, And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. He gives God all the credit for his success. It wasn't... His speech, it wasn't him at all. It was God who did what needed to be done. Nehemiah was confident that God could do what would seem to be humanly impossible. But again, we still see that Nehemiah wasn't just praying for God to do something without Nehemiah being a part of it. He wasn't praying praying for God to, to lay it on the king's heart to rebuild the walls. His request wasn't even for the king to send somebody else back to rebuild the walls. God, make the king's heart such that when I ask, he will send me back so that I can work and I can rebuild the wall. His prayer was for God to grant him success as he asked us to be sent back and to do the work. He was confident that God could do anything. And he proved it by asking this king to do what seemed humanly impossible. He risked everything. I mean, we, we again, we don't, it's hard for us, at least it's for me. Maybe you've got a better grasp of how Near Eastern people handle things with the king. But I've never been around someone that could just order my life taken at a moment's notice like that. I, I've never dealt with someone with that kind. I mean, I, I've been around people that could kill me. But it was always illegal and wrong and there would be hindrances to it. Never around someone who had the authority to just just have me killed. Just because I was sad and asked a question. And it could not only have me killed, but might have my whole family killed. In in Wednesday night, in, in youth on Sunday nights, we've been looking at Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar isn't Artaxerxes, but he's the same sort of king from the same sort of culture. And Nebuchadnezzar would periodically just have these fits of rage. And he would kill people. And he would kill their families. And then he would push down their houses and make it a pile of rubble and burn the rubble. I mean, that's the kind of king that, ne- that Nehemiah is standing before. Artaxerxes could very well do that thing to him. And he prays for God, not just don't let him kill me. Make this God who has all this power, use that power and that authority to enable me to go back and make a difference. There is courage here. There is confidence that 
not only God can, but I think Nehemiah really kind of expected that God would. I think Nehemiah would have been disappointed in any other outcome other than the king saying, okay, here's everything you wanted. I mean, he was just confident that his God was that powerful and that awesome that he could change a pagan king's heart and make it so that he would allow him to go back and do all of this work. Now we would all say, we absolutely believe God is that powerful too. But do, do our prayers and our lives, do they back up our beliefs? I mean, how many things that we pray for are so big that if they happen, there's no way anyone else could take credit for it but God. How many things do we do on, on a, even a semi-regular, I'm not talking on a daily basis, but on a semi-regular basis where we're doing it because we believe that God is going to do something through our doing it. And it's so big that if God doesn't do it, we are going to fail miserably. How many of us me, how many, how many things like that do, do I do? We see this sort of example, this sort of faith and confidence in God all throughout Scripture. Two examples that are the most common, I guess, most famous, are Elijah's his battle with the prophets of Baal. Because you're familiar with the story. He, he had the prophets of Baal meet him on Mount Carmel. And they set up Conditions to prove which God was God. And the way it was going to work is both sets of prophets, Elijah by himself and the 450 prophets of Baal, they would each set up an altar. And they would put a sacrifice on it. And they wouldn't put any, any fire on it. And then they would pray. And the God that answered by fire, that was God. Now the presumption, I think, is that the, the God who doesn't answer, his prophets are going to die badly. And so there is life and death hanging in the balance. Calling on only God can send down fire from heaven. And then Elijah tells them, you guys go first. Now again, it wasn't that if they prayed and fire came down, he was going to get a shot to see if his God would send fire too. The God that answers, that was God. That was the only God. And so when Elijah let them go first, he's saying if... if Baal's real. I'm done. But he was confident Baal wasn't real, that Yahweh was real. So after a time, of course, they couldn't, nothing happened. He built the altar. He laid the sacrifice. He had water poured on it. And where they had jumped and chanted and hollered and cut and made a scene, he just, just prayed a real simple prayer. Show them, O oh God, that you're God. And I'm your servant, and I've done these things according to your will. Fire fell, burned up the sacrifice, licked up the water, and then all of those other prophets were put to death badly. The people said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. We see the same sort of faith in Joshua as he fought for the promised land. All, all throughout the promised land, really. But one battle is my favorite. It's where Joshua calls for the sun to stand still. And what a great, what a great story. They make an alliance with people they're not supposed to make an alliance with. And everybody 
Everybody in the region gets mad at these people for making an alliance with Joshua. So they attack them. And they send word. Hey, they're coming to kill us. You've made an agreement with us. You come and deliver us. So they march all night. And then they fight all day. And as they're fighting, God is raining down hailstones, killing people. And, and more are killed with hailstones than are killed by the, the people of Israel with swords. But the sun's going down and it's going to hinder the battle. So Joshua, in front of everyone, cries out, Son, stand still. Now, how is that going to look if the sun doesn't stand still? Here is their general hollering at the sky for no apparent reason. He is not going to last long as the leader barking at the moon if nothing happens. But the sun does stand still. And they do win a great battle that day. Joshua risked everything on God. And we could go on and on and on through Scripture and see those same sort of, of events. And we, would, we are all, I, I think, confident enough in God to say He can do anything. But are we confident enough to demonstrate that confidence in our lives? I mean, what if instead of just praying for God to save someone, we prayed for God to help us be successful as we shared the gospel with them? What if instead of praying for someone to come to church, we prayed for God to make us successful as we invited them to church? What if instead of just praying for God to, to do it, we prayed for God to empower us to do it, whatever it was. How different would our lives be if instead of just praying for God to bring change while we sit back and pray, we prayed for God to enable us to be successful as we work to make a difference in the world around us. That's what confidence in God ultimately looks like. It is a faith that prays big things, but it's not just a faith that prays big things. It's a faith that prays big things and then begins to do the things being prayed about, expecting God will come through. But here's what we do a lot of times. We say, I can't. Well, I don't know enough. I, I'm not a good speaker. I, I can't. And what we think is, we think we're being humble. Well, I, I know... I know my limitations and my strengths and my weaknesses and, and I know what I can do and what I cannot do. The reality is when I say I can't, it's not humility. It's not even self-awareness. It's doubt. It's doubt in God. Because when I say I can't, what I'm actually saying is God can't. God can't enable me to do whatever it is that He wants Done. God can't work through me to make a difference in this situation, in that life, in this issue. Confidence in God isn't just that God can do something out there somewhere. It's that God can do something in me and through me and for me to make a difference in the world around me. God can and God does work through ordinary people to make an extraordinary difference in the world 
we have to believe He can. We have to be confident in His power, His greatness to overcome our weakness and our lack of greatness. That He can do what needs to be done even through us. So we need courage to act, confidence in God, and then finally, consistency in life. Nehemiah didn't just ask the king. He said he would go back and rebuild the walls. Verse 9, the petitions were granted and he began to go back. He went to do the work. I mean, he didn't wimp out. He, he went to do it. Verse 10 is kind of interesting. Because if the book of Nehemiah was a, a movie, we would hear ominous music at this point. It's when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it. It grieved them exceedingly that there, were, that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Because if you read the book of Nehemiah, these are the main bad guys throughout. They're going to work to make Nehemiah's life miserable as he seeks to do the work of God. But he works anyway. He had to know that there would be opposition going back. But he went anyway. He didn't stay, get there long before he met the bad guys that would work to make things difficult. But he stayed and he worked anyway. And he worked until it was completed. Anybody know how long it took Nehemiah to do all of the work? Not just rebuild the walls. That was 50 days. But the end of it all was like 12 years according to Nehemiah 5. That's a long time to do a lot of work in the midst of a lot of opposition. And yet he did it. He didn't stop when it got hard. He didn't stop when it took a long time. I, I don't honestly know if he had any idea how long it would take. How long does it take to rebuild walls and set up the people the way that they're supposed to be to rebuild a theocracy in the way that it's meant to be rebuilt after years and years of neglect. A long time. At least 12 years apparently. Making a difference, it doesn't happen quickly. And it doesn't happen easily. If it did, everybody would do it. So what we have to do if we want to make a difference is be consistent over the long haul. And this is going to be true in any area of life. I mean, just think about it in your own life. How hard is it just to make a change in your attitude, your speech patterns, your reactions? That's not quick and easy, is it? It takes a lot of consistent, continual effort to make changes in yourself. What about in your family? What if, I mean, think about your, your family dynamic. There are issues in your marriage that you wish were different. How long is it going to take to fix those? Instantly? One conversation? No. I, I would say at least as long as it's took you to build that dynamic up. If, it's, if you've had five years of having this sort of dynamic in your relationship, it's going to take at least five years probably to undo it. That's a lot of consistent effort. How about to make a, a difference in the church? church has been here a while. The longer, I mean, according to statistics, the longer a church has existed, the harder it is to make changes. Anything we want to change so that we can be better able to make a difference in our community, it'll take time. 
consistent effort. What about our community? If we want to make a difference in our community, does our community change quickly? No. It's going to take time, consistency, over time to make a difference. It's what it takes. If we want to make a difference, we have to be consistent over time. It's what it took for Nehemiah. It's what it will take for us. An unwillingness to stay for the long haul. An unwillingness to push through the pain of hardships and opposition. It will hinder or make us unable to make a difference. God works through ordinary people to make extraordinary differences. But those people have to be consistent over the long haul. That's the effort. And one last thing, and this isn't a main point, just a thought. Nehemiah cared. But if there's one thing that would go with all of them, over all of them, it would be caring. His heart was broken because he cared about what was going on. Courage without caring isn't going to be overly helpful. Confidence without caring won't be overly helpful. Consistency without caring won't be overly helpful. I, I, don't, I don't even think, I was thinking about this today, I don't think within the kingdom of God we can make a difference without caring about people. Now in the world, you can. You can make a better lasting light bulb without caring about anyone. But what we do as disciples of Jesus and making a difference in people's life, caring, if we don't care, our giftedness won't matter. Our eloquence won't matter. Nothing will matter if we don't care. Genuinely, truly care. I think the king, one of the things that moved the king, besides God, clearly, Nehemiah cared. I think one of the things that made the people willing to work with Nehemiah was he cared. I mean, he was the king's cupbearer. His life was pretty easy. He did not have to come back there and do all of that, but he cared, and so they listened. So, caring courage, caring confidence, caring consistency. Let's be sure that we care. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and for your goodness.